0: you're listening to a sermon from St John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Welcome if I haven't met you before. My name is Jimmy, I'm the assistant minister here at St John's Cranbourne and it's my great pleasure and privilege to be speaking to you on this topic redemption. And very importantly, I don't know about you, but I love books. I'm a book person. In fact, if you go to our house, what you will soon discover is that there are books everywhere. In fact, when we moved over to Cranbourne, we found out that we have more than 500 books. We're book people, right? We love reading books again and again. And I think it came from childhood, where there were books where I read again and again and again. And particularly, I read books like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings and a favorite, The Chronicles of Narnia. I read again and again and again because the best thing about reading things over and over again is that you get new insights. You discover things again or for the first time. But something that I discovered recently when I picked up The Chronicles of Narnia was that I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. See, I'd grown up reading these books so often. If we can move over a couple of slides. One more. I read these books so often, they'd become so familiar to me that actually they'd become distant. See, with with so many books to choose from, I thought, no, 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 I know Narnia very well but it had been so long that actually I didn't know it that well at all. Now, if I picked up The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, I knew that one fairly well. Prince Caspian, of the Dawn Treader, got a little bit more hazy. I could not tell you anything that happened in the final four books. What, had, what was once so familiar to me, what felt familiar actually was hazy and distant. And what I wonder sometimes is if that's what how Christians feel about the topic of redemption. See, redemption is the number one thing that we talk about. Because when we talk about redemption, really what we're talking about is the gospel. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus. As, as we heard in John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We love this truth. We cherish this truth. We sing it all the time. And yet I wonder if familiarity has led to it becoming distant, hazy. Whether instead of singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, we sing familiar grace, I know you well, that saved a man like me, I guess. Don Carson is a New Testament theologian and historian, and he tracked the life cycles of churches that started well and ended in failure, tearing apart denominations and churches. And he found a familiar structure to almost all of them. That first, generation one preaches the gospel. They love the message of redemption. They love the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's at the center of all that they do. Then Generation 2 goes, well, we've heard this story a few times before. Maybe we'll go and do something else on top of this. Maybe we'll just introduce some other elements. We'll be the Justice Church or the Welcoming Church or the Missional Church and the Gospel gets a little sidelined until Generation 3 neglects the Gospel. Those other things have become the reason that we meet together and the Gospel is sidelined until Generation 4 comes along and denies the Gospel. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the message of redemption found in him is no longer at the core of what it means to be Christian or what it means to be his church. And so my question this morning is, where are we? Are we generation one, preaching the gospel, cherishing the gospel, treasuring the gospel? Are we generation two who knows the gospel well, but has started to be distracted by all these other issues and topics? Have we become generation three, neglecting the gospel? It's a question for reflection. What about you? Where are you? Because the reality is that we can come to church each and every week and hear the gospel being preached and not believe the gospel for ourselves. We can come to church every week, prayer book or just in the prayers. Hear prayers and never pray ourselves. We can hear about the life of Jesus and never pick up the life that is in him. We can talk about his death and never twig that his death was for me. We can hear about his resurrection and do not trust that because he was raised from the dead, we too will be raised. Sometimes familiarity with the gospel actually inoculates us against the gospel. And my prayer and hope is that we leave this morning singing amazing grace once again, that the gospel sets our hearts on fire. Well, I think there's two elements of redemption that make up the biblical picture of what redemption is. And the first is purchase. Sam uh, laid this out well for us. Redemption literally means to purchase back something that was lost or taken, particularly with the context of slavery. And this makes sense because uh, in Israel culture was an agricultural kind of settlement. There were farmers, It didn't take much for debt to be accrued. It took one bad season, one bad crop over a couple of years and suddenly your debts were accrued. They didn't have loans. What they did would sell themselves into slavery to work off the debt. They would voluntarily enter into slavery to work off the debt that had been accrued. Tim Keller points out that it it doesn't take much to get into debt, but took a lot to get out of it. It might take your entire life. And so what the Old Testament structure did was allow for a redeemer, a relative or someone close to you who would purchase you out of slavery and secure your freedom. But if the Bible makes allowances for financial slavery, then what about slavery of the heart, slavery to sin? Because one thing the New Testament makes very clear is that although slaves are slaves, in fact, we are all slaves of something. Slaves to money, slaves to power, slaves to fame, slaves to sin. And in fact, the New Testament says something more horrific than that. It says the one that we're in service to is the enemy, the opposer, the deceiver. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 and 2 says, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. Who were you working for? Satan, the enemy. And Romans makes very clear what sin will cost us. The wages of sin is death. And the debt is coming. Who will pay it? Who can work off our debt? The Bible makes very clear that good works will not set you free. That you cannot purchase your way out of this slavery to sin. That's why it's such good news when Jesus enters onto the scene. Why I love Matthew chapter 20. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to purchase you out of slavery. Jesus came as a ransom for you, to get you out, to secure your freedom. Nikki Gumbel tells a story in Alpha. We're, we're going through Alpha at the moment as a church, and it's, this is a story of always love, a story of two men who grew up together, who know each other well, uh, except throughout the course of life, they take divergent paths. One becomes a judge, one becomes a criminal. They lose touch for a couple of years until one day the criminal turns up in the judge's court, shocked, Keep going back one slide. They're shocked. They see each other for the first time in years. The criminal is undeniably guilty. There is no way out of it. The judge looks upon his friend, wants to secure his freedom, but as a judge, he must give the sentence, and he gives the sentence in full. But it's what the judge does next that's important. He steps down, takes off his robes, and writes his friend a cheque for the amount in full. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what God does in Jesus. He sentences us, us to death because he is just. But then steps down from heaven and pays our sins in full with his death. Because he is good and he loves us. He has purchased us from slavery. That's redemption. Redemption. But the other element of redemption is substitution. Imagine for a moment that Manchester United give you a call. All of their strikers have been struck down with injury. Hamstrings abound. They've got no one to play up front for them this Sunday in the big game. They say, well, Mitch, you're playing up front for us. Mitch is going to be striker, right? And that's what happens. You get you get to play in the big game. Well, my guess would be that within five minutes, you're huffing and puffing. You can't move around anymore. You cannot keep up with these athletes. In fact, the best thing that anyone could do for you would be to substitute you off the field. You cannot do the job. Get someone on who can run, who can do the job. I'll continue. <laughs> I think I'll be huffing and puffing too, mate. (laughs) But the same theme of substitution is prevalent in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we can see it in the sacrifice of animals. So what you see again and again is that Israel would come up with these animal sacrifices where they would be, have a clean, pure, unblemished animal that would, be, that would have the sins of the person poured out. That's how they would be atoned for, made peace with God, redeemed. But there would be a festival every year called the Day of Atonement where the sins of Israel, the sins of the nation were poured out onto a goat called the scapegoat. If you've ever heard of someone being scapegoated before, that's where it comes from. Someone bearing the brunt of everyone's sins. And so we read in Leviticus 16, as I'm, all, I'm sure you're all familiar with, you're up to date with your readings in Leviticus Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The next slide. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. The goat bore the sins of the nation and was cast out. The problem for Israel was that they had to do this every single day yeah on top of the sacrifices they made already the beautiful reality of the new testament is that we discover is that jesus is our scapegoat jesus has the fullness of god's anger against sin poured out on him so that we will not experience it ourselves it says this in Romans chapter 3. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what does it say? Whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the sins previously committed to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the one who stands in our place. We love John 3.16. It is a coffee mug verse. This is the kind of thing that you buy at Kurong to put up on your wall, but sometimes I wonder whether we become a bit too familiar with John 3.16. Because we read it and go, yes, God so loved the world. And that is absolutely true. But we forget how he loves the world. God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son for those who believe to stand in for them as a substitute. To take the place for their sin, their shame, their guilt. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. What I worry is that when we become too familiar with the story of redemption, what we miss is five words. It should have been me. It should have been me. Jesus is my substitute. Jesus is tried as a criminal. So in the law court of the Lord, I will be set free. Jesus is stripped of his robes. So that I will be forever clothed with the righteousness of God. Jesus is afflicted with the curse of crucifixion so that I will be set free from the curse of sin. Jesus experiences the withdrawal of the favor of God so that I will never experience the withdrawal of God ever. He will be with me forever. Jesus is my substitute. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is your substitute. He stands in your place. I think one of my favorite examples of this is the story of Barabbas. Barabbas doesn't really get much of a mention in many of our Bible stories apart from at Easter. We don't really know all that much about him apart from the fact that he's a bad man. It says in Luke uh, on the next slide, That the crowd all shouts for Barabbas. Away with this fellow Jesus. Release Barabbas for us. And uh, Luke tells us that this was a man who'd been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place and for murder. All we know about Barabbas is that he's a rebel who has killed people. It's always stood out to me that the soldiers don't need to construct a new crucifix for Jesus. They already have one because the crucifix was meant for Barabbas. It's his day to die. Not Jesus. He's already in jail. The countdown has started. This is the day that he was going to die. And you can just imagine the dread that would have come over him knowing this. Sitting in a prison, awaiting crucifixion. This is the day he was going to die. I can just imagine what he might have felt as the guards come to his cell. He knows that this is going to be the long walk to Golgotha. This is gonna be the long one. This is it. The moment when he walks to excruciating death. Soldiers come into his shell, go over to his shackles, put the key in, and Barabbas walks free. What? How could how could I be free? What happened? Who what's Jesus took your place? Here's the interesting thing, that Barabbas is not a name, but it's also a title. It comes from two Greek words, Bar meaning son and Abba meaning father. Barabbas literally means son of the father. What we discover in the story of Barabbas is that a son of the father was set free because the son of God took his place. What we find in the Gospels is that sons and daughters of the father are set free because Jesus took your place. That as the Son of God walks willingly to humiliation and death, to nakedness and desolation, He did so that sons and daughters of the Father would be set free. He took your place. That's what's so amazing about grace. It should have been me. The death that Jesus died should be my death. John Stott famously said that until we, we will never see the cross of Christ as something for us until we realize that it's, been do- it's something been done by us. It should have been me. It should have been me. That's why redemption is so special. That's why we sing amazing grace. That's why we say, talk about the gospel all the time because there is nothing that you could have done to purchase yourself out of slavery. There is nothing you could do, you could have done, but Jesus has taken your place, and so we praise him forevermore. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It should have been me, but it's not, and so we sing. Let me pray. God, I pray that we would grasp redemption, that we wouldn't become so familiar with it that we actually become inoculated against how amazing your grace is, that you paid the price we could not pay and died the death we could not, died the death we should have died. God, may we not be a church that assumes the gospel, neglects the gospel, denies the gospel. May we be a church that cherishes and treasures and proclaims and preaches the good news of redemption available only in Jesus, that whoever believes in you, trusts in you, will not perish but will experience everlasting life in you. God, may we who are sleepy, distant and hazy from your grace wake up. And dwell in the fact that it should have been us. May we who have never not yet known your grace. Cry out to you. Father thank you for standing in my place. For standing and taking the weight of my sin. My shame. and Bringing us into your family. There's nothing we could have done. And that's why we gather to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. May we know how amazing your grace is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.